This is the Accounting Influencers Podcast with Rob Brown and Martin Bissett. With Rob Brown and Martin Bissett. Hey Rob, quick history lesson for you. Did you know that the first tax records were found etched on ancient clay tablets? Yeah, I've not realised how old you are, Martin, and clay tablets are great though, but they're not exactly compatible with the latest digital tax innovations like making tax digital, are they? No, they're not. People weren't thinking future-proofing back then. But for our listeners, you know, if they're moving clients from similar old-school methods to digital records, there is a famously friendly accounting software solution for the UK's smallest businesses. It's funny you should mention that I was a judge at the recent Digital Accountancy Forum Awards, and that was a collection, Martin, of the great and the good in the accounting world. All the top networks, associations, alliances, some of the biggest vendors there. They were big on awards as well, and uh, it just made me think free agent is who you're talking about, isn't it? And they've won a lot of awards for their integrations and platforms about being really easy to use. And clients can use it on mobile or tablet. And not just the clay kind. Rob, where do accountants and bookkeepers go who really want to accelerate their client's journey to the cloud? What would you recommend they do? I'd recommend they go and get a free trial at freeagent.com forward slash tablet. Because once you get into this, you experience it, you see how easy it is to use. You'll probably be a client for life. Welcome to the show, and I'm delighted to have with me today the legend that is Ed Kless. Ed, hello to you. Hello. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure, Ed, and you truly are an accounting influencer, but there may be one or two people all over the world that haven't heard of you. Just tell us a bit about your background and your expertise. Well, it's real interesting because I was mentioning before we started recording that I have the best job in the world, and I really definitely believe that, Uh, especially at Sage. Uh, You know, we have a CEO who he has the highest profile job, but uh, I have the best job because my job for the last... 16 years has been to help our business partners, whether they be people who are reselling our software as we do at Sage or also influencing the sale of our software through our accountants programs and things like that, help make their businesses better. So I don't get involved transactionally per se. And, you know, how much software are you going to be able to push this month? Which, you know, and we got people to do that. And that's great. That's what we're a software company. That's what we're supposed to do. Sell Mm -hmm. software, right? But my job has been and role has been to really just help these people make their businesses better. And that's been extraordinarily freeing because what I've been able to do is concentrate on things like the evolution of the business model around professional firms. And that's led me to work to one of your previous guests, Ron Baker, and all kinds of fun stuff like that to what what can I focus to help them really make their businesses better? Mm. Why is Sage so good to work for, Ed? Why is what so good to work for? I'm sorry, why, I missed that. Why is Sage so good to work for? Oh, gosh. Uh, Sage is an amazing company from, from a lot of perspectives. One, you know, I think I've been given freedom, right? And uh, one of my favorite books is a, a book by Peter Block called Freedom and Accountability at Work. And uh, if you perhaps we want to delve into this because it's a fascinating topic. But in this, he says that freedom and accountability are the same thing, right? We, we oftentimes think of the fact that, w- w- that accountability is like this impact Pose thing, but it's not. For, accountability must be chosen. I'm accountable to my spouse. I'm accountable to my, I choose it. Mm. And if you really want to give people accountability, if you really want to have accountability at work, you've got to give people their freedom. And that's what Sage has done for me, has given me my freedom. In addition to that, we'd have do incredible things with, with the work that we do for the Sage Foundation. Um, every single colleague across Sage, I believe this is true worldwide, uh, has up to five days that they can do on, a, on an annual basis 
basis where we can go work for any cha charity of our choosing. We organize days around. So if people want to do, do this stuff as a group, they can. Mm -hmm. So uh, Habitat for Humanity here in the States is a, is a really big one. You know, people go and build houses in low income areas. Fantastic work. So it's just a, it's a great company. We had you know good good benefits and just a, a wonderful place to be. And as I said, where I am, given my freedom to do what I want. Yeah, sure. Now there was a time when Sage was the only gig in town, but it's got very competitive in that space now. What kind of shape do you feel you're in to compete? You know, it, it, we're we're in a in a similar position to lots of different places making a transition right to 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 full cloud. Mm. Uh, you know, the the industry overall, and I'm, I'm going to back out here and take a, a view of not just the accounting industry, but software in general. There have been co some companies that have been able to make the transition fairly successfully, Adobe being probably the, the best known, right, that has made the transition from on-premises, with an S, by the way, not mm. on-premise, different thing, uh, on-premises to, to cloud-based. And I think that we are following in that footsteps, and we've done fairly well. It's still, it, we've st still got a lot of work to do, but the, it's, it's because it is a change not only to the technology, but to the business model, yeah. right? And that that is always a much more difficult change to make when you're shifting away from one business model to the other. And it's not often that companies are able to do that, right? It's yeah. not often that companies are able to not, to change not only the, the technology, but the business model itself. That's a really good point. I, I, we interview experts all over the world here on and ask them what do you feel makes the good accounting firms great? And one of them is the ability to change that agility. And usually you get that in the smaller firms because they they can pivot quickly. But the larger firms can also do it because they've got the big resources and the, the strong leadership from the top. What do you feel is driving change at the moment? Well, you know, it's interesting that a lot of people would default to technology. I think technology is 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 you know, is always accelerating, right? Uh, mm. Barry Melanson, who's the head of the AICPA here in the States, had a quote at his recent con the recent conference that they had where he said was, the pace of change is right now as slow as it's ever going to be. Mm. <laughs> right? Frightening. <laughs> <laughs> right. And when you think about that, yes, that's that, that's true. But, I, I, and I, you know, I hate to sound like a broken record here, but it's the business model that changes. Andy Grove, right, the head of the CEO and founder of Intel, yeah. said the biggest threat to disruption is not new technology, but new business models. Yeah. Right? It's an afterthought. The technology comes along for the ride, but it's the change to the business model that makes it. And, you know, the example that is probably classic, most people understand, is what Apple did in the recording industry. You know, Apple released the iPod in October of 2001. I want you to think about that. The original iPod was October of 2001. It was the dot-com dot boom, right, or, or bust, was taking place in, yeah. in the middle of all of this. They Price their device at two and a half times the price of their nearest competitor, right? So two and a half times more. Yeah. Had never done a consumer electronic product before. Right, and yet they're successful. It becomes one goes on to be one of the most successful products in in history. And why is it not because of the technology, but because they changed the business model of how you acquired music? You know, back in two thousand one, the way that you acquired music was you really got ticked off because you had to plop down you know twenty pounds or whatever for an entire CD. <laughs> you only wanted one song because fourteen of them sucked. And <laughs> was good, right? So this you went crazy over this. And Apple actually, in response to Napster, if you remember the original Napster said, yeah. how about we just sell you the one song you want for a dollar? And we all said, yeah, of course we'll do that. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> right? Yeah. And so that, so that is a change to the business model because the, the business model, the way I, I like to define it is how does your firm create value for and then capture that value as a per, some percentage of the value it's created in, through your pricing? Yeah. We'll go into business models a, a lot deeper, but what in essence makes a good accounting firm great for you? It, the, what makes it great is, is um, you mentioned it, it's adaptability, right? right? Um, Darwin did not say survival of the fittest. He said survival of the most adaptable. Okay. He's misquoted then. <laughs> misquoted. It's absolutely misquoted. It's not survival of the fittest because fittest would mean biggest. Well, the dinosaurs didn't survive. Sure. They were by far the most fit, but they were the least adaptable. The most adaptable were the mammals crawling around that were able to get underground mm. when the you know the the, the uh, meteor hit right uh, so it's the survival of the most adaptable and you're right it size has nothing to do with it size has absolutely nothing to do with it because yes you and you you laid out the arguments perfectly I hear this all the time from people well we're we're too big where we're too big to be adaptable yes but you have the resources or mm. we're too small to be adaptable we don't have the resources yes but you're small it's easier for you to make the change yeah great right? so it's 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 Really, it's size has nothing to do with it, and I think it, people have to focus on adaptability as strategy. Yeah, that our strategy is to be adaptable. What are the what are the key facets of adaptability? I know one of them is the right business model, but just dip into that a bit for us. It it's it's being open to seeing what's on the horizon. You know, the 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 great work that uh, Nassim Taleb has done around black swan events. Yeah, right. The very famous uh, book, um, and if you haven't read the book, you probably know what a black swan event is, right? It's this this event that we didn't see coming that re- retrospectively changes everything. And in retrospect, we go, yeah, we absolutely should have seen that, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, of course. Um, and and I think what has to happen is, is we, but the, the firms that keep their eyes open to these black swan events that are coming down that, because if you see, even if you see them first, you can be far more adaptable than other people. Mm. So it's that willingness to look forward. And to do this, and this is one of the my most fun exercises, is to sit around. Here's where strategy should begin in any company, but in accounting firms specifically. How are we going to create value for companies that we serve in the future, or people that we serve in the future five years from now? That's the start. The, the starting strategy question, not how are we going to create revenue. How are we going to create value? How are we going to help people five years from now? But Ed, how tough is that? Given that few people can put a finger on what's going to happen in 12 to 18 months. Well, it's, it's extraordinarily difficult, but it's, it's the, the notion is, is that you must be looking towards that and allocate a, a good chunk of your thinking to that convert to, to that conversation in your brain, right? Yeah. Um, you know, we we I I personally believe, and Tom Peters has said this for years, that we have to spend more time on strategy, not less. F- far too many firms, you know, strategy may be a once a year retreat where the partners go away to Oslo and you know. <laughs> sit around and do whatever, right? But what we really need is we need a, we need strategy to be thinking about, the, about a weekly strategy check-in. What's new? What's changed in the last week? And what what adapt, uh, adoptions can we make today uh, to that end? Mm. So I think it's, it's really, and it's really hard. No, it's really hard. That's why most people don't do it. And how much of a challenge is it for accounting firms, given that the majority of the leadership in the firms are baby boomers? They're old school, they're traditionalists in a way. And not many of them are millennials who are perhaps easier in driving change. 
yeah, okay. So there's two things on that. I I don't buy that baby no. boomer millennium. No, it, to I, the, to me, the the whole generational thing at work is like astrology for business. Okay. Yeah, you know, it's like, oh, what, oh, they're a Scorpio. You know, what are you gonna do? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Got a, got a sting in their ass, right? <laughs> yeah, like, you know, they're just, that's how they are. They're Scorpio, <laughs> right? You know, and I think the same thing is, and, and it's really, it's the danger of labeling, right? Yeah, right. Okay. I've seen plenty of baby boomers who are extraordinarily forward thinking and adaptable. Right. Right. Now, have I seen baby boomers who sit there on their butt and say, you know what? I just want to run the table. I just, as long as, as long as the wheels don't come off while I'm managing partner, <laughs> And yeah. that's you know, 18 months. You know, <laughs> I'm catching out. Yeah. That, that's it. Right. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I, yeah, do I think that, that, so there's, there's a little bit of, of both. So I don't buy the label thing, but be that as it may, I think the point is true that there are, there are people who are, are, are very averse to risk. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and I think that's part of the problem. You know, profits come from risk. Profits okay. come from taking risk. That's where profits come from. If, if you're not, if you don't want to take any risk, cash out, cash out your firm and put everything in government bonds. You'll earn 2%. You'll make a 2% profit, right? If you want to make more than a 2% profit, you got to take a risk. Yeah. It's too safe to, sorry, it's too risky to play it safe. Yeah. Well, you know, and this is a, a great thing that I think is misunderstood about Peter Drucker, right? Peter Drucker had a, uh, he had three possible types of risk is the first type of risk is that the, the risk that a business can afford to take, right? The second type of risk is a risk that a business can't afford to take. But the third type of risk is the most misunderstood. And that is the type of risk that a, a business can afford not to take. Okay. Here's the problem. That third type of risk is never identified by doing an ROI analysis. Mm. You can't do it because ROI presupposes type one or type two risk, right? But that third type of risk will never be identified by an ROI. No. And there's some great examples in the book Decisive by Chip and Dan Heath. And they talk about how difficult it is and how inept we are at making good business decisions. No, absolutely. We are terrible at it, you know? And again, it has to be a a, a focus on the future. Entrepreneurship, the French word meaning undertaker, which translates terribly into English, (laughs) it means someone who's undertaking an endeavor, right? And it's a journey and you have to be constantly looking forward in that journey. You know, the the great quote from Eisenhower, you know, uh, who with Montgomery ran D-Day, right? This this whole notion of that that, uh, the planning is essential, but plans are worthless, right? The, 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 the plan itself is worthless. It's the act of planning. It's the gathering of minds together to talk about the planning process where the value is. Mm-hmm. I, I love the box of Mike Tyson's quote. Anyone can have a game plan until they get hit hard in yeah. the face. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. So what yeah. do accounting firms learn from other industries? Sadly, very little. I mean, I think that's one. That's one of the downsides of an accounting. Is that because they're not outward looking at? What's the deal? Yeah. No. Yeah. And and I, I'm being unfair here. I think you know many many businesses are not outward looking, right? The the the, the there's there's a there's a I don't know. I think there's a cult in business today, but in, in accounting firms especially, uh, this cult of efficiency. Have you heard of these guys? Mm. There's there there are priests in this cult. They're called <laughs> lean six. Sigma <laughs> black belt people. Yeah. This, this is a cult. This is a cult that is focused on eking out 
every last efficiency, right? And here's another, going back to the Darwin thing, the dinosaurs were very efficient, right? And, and that's still true today. The last buggy whip manufacturer was the most efficient, right? Before they were, the, the, last, the, the last maker of ice boxes before refrigerators came along yeah. was the most efficient, right? So a, a, efficiency in and of itself is, is not a desirable goal. I contrast efficiency with effectiveness, right? Efficiency is doing the thing right. Effectiveness is doing the right thing, Things. Yeah. right? And here's the problem. And this is, again, this is Peter Drucker. Why it all goes back to Peter Drucker. He says, there's nothing so wasteful as doing that which is ineffective efficiently. Yeah. <laughs> and there are far too many firms that focus on doing things efficiently when it's the wrong thing. Yeah, but even take cloud, for example, there are 80% of firms here in the UK and not on the cloud. I mean, that's the most efficient and the most effective thing to do. So why aren't they adopting? I don't, I don't know necessarily believe that it might be the most effective. Right. Right. For okay. them. Right. Now, over time. Yes. Yeah. Over time. Right. Sure. Over time. But the, 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 I think we have to understand that, especially in the mid market, because I play in both the small business and the mid market space uh-huh. in the mid market. Some of these systems, such as, uh, you know, the, the, the Sage products that go back decades. Right. For these mid market. Those those suckers, those are hum. Those are fine tuned machines that have been customized and get exactly what people need out of it. All of the stuff that we, we put into it. And, you know, and here's the real, in, in the end, debits equal credits. <laughs> debits equal credits. There's, we haven't done triple entry bookkeeping yet, right? So so the, the ultimately, if the system is working for them in a fine-tuned machine, look, moving to cloud, huge struggle. Yeah. It's not going to happen. But an accountant of 20 years ago is a very different animal now, isn't it, to an accountant of these days? <sighs> I don't know. When was the last innovation in accounting? Ooh. <laughs> And yes, a great question. And really, is the innovation coming from outside in the tech world driving change in the accounting or from clients even? Right. You know, I have, I have this great slide. It's, it's a joke. It's the new accounting innovation, right? That right. the, 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 here is the old, the old way. Customer shows up with the shoebox full of receipts. <laughs> yeah. Right. New way. Customer shows up with the Ziploc bag full of receipts. Right. That's, <laughs> That's the new technology. Yeah, sure. <laughs> right? But what's the latest innovation <clears throat> in accounting? I mean, you might say the statement of cash flows. Mm. I mean, I, when's there been an accounting innovation? Like really a pure innovation in accounting. Let's talk about business models for a moment. How have business models in accounting changed over the years, if at all? They, they, some of them have changed. Yeah, right. they, there are people who are moving to this. And of course, the biggest one and the one that, that Ron and I have been involved in is the whole movement toward value, value-led pricing, value pricing, however you want to talk about it, value-based pricing. And of course, the elimination of timesheets. Right? Yeah. And th- this is where this, you know, it comes down to this, is that the business model of we sell time is dying. Yeah. Dying. But it's right? still alive and well in a lot of places, isn't it? But yeah, yeah I, I take your point. It's dying, right? Mm-hmm. This is where technology is supplanting all of this stuff, right? That's the that's the big problem. Is look, there there are systems now that can do what used to take rooms full of people, right, to literally ten minutes. Yeah, right. Well, that used to all be billable time. And when that was the case, we had the pyramid in accounting, right? We had new pe- the new grads moving in, you know, and there was this big pyramid scheme and it filtered all the way up to top. Uh-huh. But now, even the accounting grads are not going into public accounting, at least in the States. 
There are more accounting grads in the States today, percentage-wise. And the number of people graduating with accounting degrees is going up. Right. But the number of people going into public accounting is going down, mm-hmm. right? Because they're going into other things. They're going directly into industry. They're like, I don't need the CA or CPA, as it's called here, right? I, I, I'll, I'll do whatever I need to do over in private industry. Yeah. There's a stat just come out in the UK that says 50% of the CEOs in the FTSE 100, which is your Fortune 100, uh, have accountancy qualifications. They're they're accountants. Mm -hmm. So they're Mm -hmm. obviously doing something right and making good decisions. But I I want to come back to value, Ed, if I can. You mentioned it a lot in driving strategy, and it's now driving business models. What is the definition of value in the Ed Class Dictionary of Business? <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I steal all of my best stuff from other people. I, it, <laughs> very few original thoughts here, but um, it, the, the value is defined by economists as the maximum price that a, a customer will pay for an item. Yeah, right. That's the that's the classic definition of. Value. Are you going to tweak that? Uh, probably, <laughs> you know, but so the, 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 no, the, so here, so here's the thing though, there's three, in any transaction, there are three, three different things going on. There's the value, there's the price and the cost, Yeah. right? And the value is the mat, theor, the theoretical maximum that the customer would pay. Now they're not going to pay that. That's just the theoretical maximum, they, but they should pay, they'd be willing to pay a dollar less. Let's say they don't, but that's at least the theory, right? So that's the value. Then there's the price and then there's the cost. Well, let's just take it in reverse order. As an accounting firm, as a business, do your do your customers care about your cost structure? Like, do you walk into a coffee shop and say, I hope they have their cost structure figured correctly? <laughs> like, you don't care. No. Right? So you don't care, as a consumer, you don't care about the cost structure. So why do accountants argue with their customers about costs? Well, it, it took me five hours to do that. That's your cost. I don't freaking care. <laughs> right? It's madness. Yeah. Right? Okay. Do prices, do customers want prices to be higher or lower? Lower. Is that, can we just accept that as a universal truth? Yeah. Right. I mean, okay. Cause blaming, we lost the deal. We, we lost this engagement on price. price. It's a lot like brain blaming an airline clash on gravity. What caused the <laughs> gravity? Gravity. <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> Right. But value is the perception of value of the customer. See, it's not it, 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 it's not there's no um, there's no objective definition of value. It's always subjective. Value is what the customer says it is. So when you go back to your question on strategy and firms should be thinking, how can we deliver more value in three, four five years time? I'm not defining the direction of the firm. If we use your definition of value, they're actually asking, how can we increase our client's perception of value in the coming years? Yeah, absolutely. And here's the thing. You can actually create value in the perception of the customer's mind by not necessarily changing your product. And I'm going to give you an example. Before we started recording, we were talking about this guy, Rory Sutherland, and this is from him, right? So I steal from the best, right? So this was his idea and you'll, you go, you will appreciate this. So the, the, the British government or whoever it was came to him and they said, we, we, we want to do this campaign, right? To um, figure out a way to get people to drive. Uh, well, let me give it in this different example the, the, to, to increase the speed of the, the, the train that goes from London to Paris. Right. Right. And there was this whole huge thing. And I forget how many billions of pounds this was to be able to increase by 30 minutes. I mean, it's going to cut the journey down by 30 minutes. 
And, and Rory said, you know what? I can, I can, I can increase your customer satisfaction for one tenth the price, one tenth the price, right? He says, here's what we're going to do. We're going to take that money and we're going to take 10% of it. And we're going to hire male and female supermodels <laughs> to pass out free Chateau Petrus to everyone on the train. <laughs> Right? And he says, you know what? People will ask for the train to be slowed down. <laughs> Longer journey. More, more champagne. I like it. Right? Because that's the, the perception of value is what's the journey, right? That the, is that what's, what's happening on the journey. But isn't one of the key struggles that accountants have with the whole pricing thing is that it is so subjective, Ed, because one person's value means nothing to another person. Yeah, which is, which is why, uh, you know, one of, one of Ron and my most popular shows uh, in, the, in the last couple of years that we did on the Soul of Enterprise has been the one that we did on the value conversation. Mm. The, the, the skill that all professionals have to become the David Beckham, Wayne Gretzky, Babe Ruth, <laughs> sports legend of choice, right? That they have to become the best at is this value conversation. And the value conversation is simply this, the conversation that you as the professional have with the, with the prospective customer or your current customer, right? That allows you to elicitate, to, to extract their perception of value. You can impose your perception of value on them, but you can ask great questions that allow for that perception of value to come out from, from them. For example, yeah. Uh, okay. So, for example, um, okay. This is my most famous example. This is uh, this is the thing that happened to me. Um, this is a long, long time ago. A guy asked me for a custom report. Right. I was doing this accounting system implementation. You want a custom report that did inventory turns by item category. Right. It didn't exist, but I thought it would be great for me to break into my crystal reports prowess at the time. And I create the report for him. Five minutes later, I'm like, boom! This is the report. Right. This is during the demo. We hadn't gotten the deal yet. Right. So I produced this report for him. He's like, great, that's fantastic. I love it, right? We get the deal. It's $60,000 deal, right? So it's a pretty good deal. Yeah. All right. Six months later, he throws his arm around me and he says, Ed, you know that report that you gave me? I'm like, what are you talking about? Because I did it during the demo, right? I couldn't even put it on my timesheet. Yeah. Right? He says, well, we've been able to figure out that because of that, we have that information in that report, we're going to increase our sales this year, our revenue this year by 40%. Whoa. Roughly a $10 million company on a run rate for 14. Okay. So what was the value of that report to him? Four million bucks. Wow. Right. What did I get for it? Nothing. Zero. Okay. <laughs> so that was the story that clicked me the other way. That that was that sent me on this path down this, I've got to figure this out because this doesn't make any sense. Mm. Right. So however, and what I've since discovered then, in fact, I'm still I'm working on a presentation for it right now. This book, Let's Get Real or Let's Not Not Play. Yeah. On Calsa. Right. Right? was the, the eye-opening experience because here's what I should have said to the guy. Thanks for asking. We do customizations like that all the time. However, oftentimes you don't need a customization to get the information you want because there's other ways of getting it out of the system. Would it be okay if I asked you a couple questions as to why you think you need this report? Yeah. He says yes, and then I drop into the conversation, really? So what, if you had this report, what was going to happen? He says, well, we would be able to get all of this stuff. Oh, really? What would that cause? Well, now, would he have come up with $4 million bucks? Probably not, but he would have come up with a million. Yeah. Right. It's a lovely framework. I coach the accountants on our programs. We teach accountants to win work. 
And we mm-hmm. get them to have uh, a benefit conversation and then a value conversation. So a benefit is what stood out for you about working with us. What do you like about working with us? And then when they say something, then you ask the why question, which is the value. Oh, really, why do you say that? Of all the things you could have said, what prompted that? And when we're able to do that, why does that make a difference to you? And that starts to get into the value rather than just what we do for you. Love that. And, you know, um, Kalsa calls it evidence and impact. And that's one of what come, some of my favorite questions, especially for accountants, because accountants, uh, if you're dealing with other accountants, right? Accountants who are dealing with other accountants, right? Yeah. Uh, in business is this question. What's the evidence that you have that this is a problem? And almost always that evidence is a value is value. Yeah. Right. Love that. Yeah. That's the evidence that you have. Yeah. It's a great question. Ed, we got to go soon. Uh, what do you love most about what you do? What do I love most about what I do? Um, seeing light bulbs go off. <laughs> and it, it, it's a combination of, of two things, seeing light bulbs go off, but it's also this. It's also, again, with 16 years of perspective, and my mentor and I talk about this all the time. It's the, it's the understanding that oftentimes the light bulb isn't going to go off. Instead, you're going to light a fuse. Right. And the fuse, the fuse can be a varying length. The fuse can be a day long. The fuse, the fuse can be a decade long. And I have had the experience of people coming up to me a decade later and saying, you said something 10 years ago <laughs> that stuck in my mind and I didn't get it for a long time. And now I get it. And that feels good, right? Oh my gosh. Yes. Yeah. Let's get your crystal ball out, Ed, as we close. What's coming up for accounting firms and the profession generally over the next five years or so? Five years or so, um, because this might be closer to 10, but I, I, I do think the almost virtual elimination of compliance work. Wow. Okay. Because it's, it, it, it's, 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 it's all going to be done by AI and computer, you know, in the, in the States here, for example, we had a big brouhaha about this, but uh, it's almost the, ex- the exact opposite of you're making tax digital, yeah. right? <laughs> It, the, the the government actually passed a law that says said, said that the government would not accept tax returns directly on the I mean how stupid is this right basically giving a a a, a, a monopoly or a monopsony actually to into it <laughs> like all these other guys who are, you know H and R Block it's like was, they finally reversed it but here's the deal we know in the states and I'm sure you know this with making tax digital the government knows ninety plus percent of what it needs to know to fill out your tax return, yeah, right? And if they sent us all a pro forma and said, here's what we got, what else do you want to do, yeah. right? Um, and I think what most people don't realize in the States, one of the biggest changes that, that uh, the, you know, the, the, um, the tax change made in the States here by Donald Trump and the Re- Republican administration was the doubling of the standard deduction, right? Which, which basically means that the double, double the number of people don't really have to do anything other than check two boxes and and say, yeah, I'm taking the standard deduction, mm. right? So I, I think that's that trend is going to continue, and we're going to have less and less actual compliance work that needs to get done, and more and more what I like to talk about is true consulting or advocacy uh, work that's going to be need to be done. And look, accountants are positioned well for this, but you know who is even better positioned for this? And this is bookkeepers. Ooh. And the reason is, is that bookkeepers, especially in the U.S. and Canada, maybe not in the U.K., but bookkeepers, so people who don't necessarily have their certification, are better better at the bedside manner. They're better at the handholding. They're better at, at guiding people through uh, that even maybe not have the quote technical expertise,
abilities, but they have the relationship skills. Yeah. And I think that's one of the biggest changes that you're going to see in, is the, 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 the doubling or tripling of the, the importance of relationship skills. Sure. That's great. And if people want to find out more about the Sage Advice podcast and the, the great show you've got with Ron Baker, the soul of enterprise and, and the stuff that you do, what's the best way for them to reach you? You know, I'm not a very creative marketer. So the answer is go to the Sage or Sage Advice podcast.com <laughs> or the soul of enterprise.com. Sure. So <laughs> there'll be two websites where you can uh, take a look at the, both of those properties. The, 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 uh, the, the Sage Advice podcast is a short form podcast, uh, less than 10 minutes usually where we're featuring a guest and telling their story. The soul of enterprise, as you mentioned, is Ron and I oftentimes having a guest, but oftentimes just ourselves vamping on things and talking about important topics and all available for free. So just kind of go there and check it out. Sounds great. And would you leave us, uh, Ed, with a few wise words for the accounting leaders and, and CPAs listening who want to just raise the game and, and be a little bit more effective in today's fast-moving world? Kill your timesheets as quickly as you possibly can. And replace them with? Uh, KPIs, key performance indicators, um, after action reviews, right? And uh, and I would also say looking at value, the, what's called the value gap, which is that exercise I described earlier. What, How are we going to create va- value five years from now? So those mm-hmm. would be the three replacements that I would suggest for the timesheet. Yeah. They don't look like a timesheet. They don't smell like a timesheet, but they are actually more effective than the timesheet. Yeah. Well, a class that's been, uh, I've just written down the word hip, uh, hard hitting, insightful and passionate. <laughs> Thanks so much for your time today. It's been brilliant. Uh, no, don't thank me for my time. Thank me for my insight or my knowledge. See, time doesn't really matter. But I, <laughs> thanks Ed, for having me, Rob. I really appreciate it. Ed Class, thanks so much for your value today. It's been great. <laughs> <laughs> this is the Accounting Influencers Podcast with Rob Brown and Martin Bissett. Martin, the Countex just gets bigger and bigger, doesn't it? It does, it does. And it's the biggest, I'd say biggest show in Europe, and I'm thinking maybe the biggest show in the world. What we know, for sure, is the one-stop shop for digital and in-person events. With the following it's built over the years, Accountex packed a punch that's with events that are dedicated to both the accounting and finance professionals. Yeah, and it's all CPD accredited as well. They've got a virtual summit coming up 10th, 11th of November, which is free to attend. And they've got some interesting topics coming up there, haven't they? Digital assets, social mobility, future of cloud accounting, commercializing opportunities for NTD, penalty reform, not your normal lineup. Yeah, and it's all ramping up to the big event they've got going on in London at the Excel Arena. It's the largest in Europe. And if you want your CPD points, if you want to find out what's happening, don't forget to book that in your diary for the 11th and 12th of May. And there's a website they can go to, Martin. Yeah, accountex.co.uk or indeed follow them on Twitter at at accountex. That's at accountex. 